Well, hello, folks, and welcome to another Between Two Sundays. I am Mark G. This guy is Mark B. He's got a hat. I don't. <laughs> That's all I got today. Sign <laughs> of superiority. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know, man. I think the hat's very good. I like it. Yeah. It's very, very you. I am. Um... I do get people who think I must be bald underneath it. I do wear it a lot, so, but kind that's like actually a, not the case. Like a signature <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. A few, few people call it the signature cap as well. That, there that's you not... go. There you go. Nice work. Well, it is Between Two Sundays, which means we are going to have a chat about the readings we just lived out of from last Sunday and start to discuss in a little bit more in depth the readings that we're looking into as we approach this coming Sunday, of course, last Sunday was the ninth Sunday of Pentecost. Yes. We are really cruising on our way to the end of the first liturgical year. And um, it's been fun. Episode 36 or 37, I can't remember what we're up to, but it's something crazy like exciting. that. Not many yeah. to go and we've um, smashed out a year, which will feel like an accomplishment somehow. It will. I don't it will. know. It will. Uh, so last week's readings, we had a really... Man, deep conversation last week um, out of the stuff. You know, we talked about the nature of prophecy, the nature of um, faith, the nature of Christ's comings, uh, plural. And, um, man, there was just so much to take away and chew on. Uh, I know I said I'd probably go back and have a listen, but I haven't had the chance yet. Um, yeah, but I, I will. I wanted, want to do that. Um so yeah, I'm I'm looking at these readings and I'm thinking, what what did you bring from the week that's just gone? What are you chewing on? What are you wading in still that's yeah. come out of last week's readings? Yeah. So I've been sitting with the gospel reading, um, especially the quote for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And thinking of this in the context of the text where it's a call to be ready. So it's not so much a call to be, um, it, it's not so much a call for that treasure to be established in the present, but it's a, it's a future looking thing. And um, I, I think I saw that in the Hebrews reading as well, where there's this dealing, dealing with faith, and especially in the Hebrews reading that we'll look at today. Mm. Um, there's this, just this sense of our treasure is future rather than here. It's not so much, um, I know sort of pop psychology says, you know, that your treasure is found in the present. And I'm not, not wouldn't sort of want to play that down necessarily. But in these passages, our, our treasure is found in the future hope of the God who is putting, putting everything right. And, of course, that completely changes who we are in the present. Mm. And I've just been sitting with that that idea that um, that our present is changed by our future hope and um, and and that we should be very aware I think um, or, or constantly um, constantly being informed by the things we hope for yeah the things we desire are the things that um, form our present and um, and obviously here is here is a call for for that treasure to be Christ um, but but I think 
and there's a lot there's a lot of Jesus that I think this of at the moment. Um, I, I think Jesus is constantly not giving us another law as much as Jesus is telling us the nature of things, telling us the nature of creation. And I, I, I think this is insightful for all of us in that sense. Um, where our treasure is, there our heart is, and yeah. our lives grow out of that. So here is a call to put our treasure in, in Christ. But, of course, we all go through life and we put our treasure somewhere. Um, and it forms us. Um, it, it, um, it is the kind of, of hope. That, that's the kind of hope that, um, that causes us to behave in, move in um, certain directions in our lives. Um, so I've just found myself aware this week of um, where is my treasure and where is it leading me? Mm. Where are those moments where my treasure is really well founded? And where are those moments where I probably stray a little bit and find my hope in other places? And and where does that lead me? Um, mm. How is that forming me? Um, how is that, what is that getting me ready for, to use the language of the the gospel passage um but i i think this is this is telling us something about the way creation is the way we are created much more than some kind of bribe you know an, an angry god saying um me or me or i will destroy or i i will lead astray it's just saying you know i'm the only perfectly loving one follow me or something else by all means but know that they will lead in different directions and wherever you choose to put your treasure there your heart will be yeah i think there's something really important in what you've just said actually that is incredibly powerful i, I know it's becoming less common now but it's still out there this idea that now doesn't matter as much as the future Within Christian circles. Yes, very much. So. Now doesn't matter as much as the future. What yeah. you've talked about here is um, a way of seeing that eschatological thinking in what it means for now. So by all means, hold on to the hope of the future. Hold on to what the future is yeah. for. Hold on to what blessings might come or however you understand your eschatology and break it down but never lose sight of the fact that that should shape your now. Yes. And if it doesn't, then you've got to ask the question, what is it about your eschatology that thinks you can just cruise through unchanged? Because yeah. I don't see that. However you understand these you know, eschatological thinking, this end times thinking, this uh, what will happen in the future thinking, however you understand it, however you rank its importance, is kind of irrelevant compared to how does it shape your living? How does it shape your being? How does it shape your doing in the world and your interaction in the world and the way that we live in our world? Um, and as you mentioned, it, it does hint on some of these things in this week's readings as well, so we'll probably cross this bridge again. But the idea that um, 
we can have this hope and we're investing in this hope. Oh, I'm, I'm putting all my chickens down there. That's great. But what's it doing to you now? Mm. That's a really important question to ask because we do need to grow and transform. Um, I know someone once explained it like this. They said, you know, if you want to believe that you enter into some heaven, it's probably a good idea to be transformed into the sort of person that can enjoy that before <laughs> you get there. Um, yeah. and, and I kind of liked that, that yeah. um, the idea was is that, look, again, your eschatology, place off away. Sure. It's not going to make a difference to how we live now unless you allow it to make a difference to how we live now. And I think Jesus was mostly about the how are you living, how are you engaging, what are you doing? And if he's teaching this, the lens kind of points back to what you were saying. How does it transform who I am and how I live today? Yes. So I think that's that's beautiful. Um, yeah. Yeah, I really like that. Really like that, Mark. You're reminding me of Richard Raw, who um, kind of challenges the evangelical world, which you and I have both spent plenty of time in, um, by saying, you know, why why questioning this idea of let, let's put hell off into the future, let's put heaven off into the future, let's put perfect repentance off into the future, which is, you know, the kind of attitude that can look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, actually, this isn't possible now, this is something for the future as well. Um, <laughs> it, he's just, he is so discontent with that kind of theology that puts all the hard stuff off and now you kind of just need to turn up to church, be a nice guy, pay your tithe, that kind of thing. Um, he thinks there's something fundamentally wrong um, with our putting, uh, with our, with with these, um, with these theologies that we don't seem to allow to affect the way we live now. And I think that I, th I think he's quite insightful there. Mm. Um, we we uh, heaven can't be something that's just off in the future. Hell can't be something that's just off into the future. Um, salvation can't be something that's off into the future. Faith can't be something that's off into the future. All of these things, Jesus comes into, Jesus is incarnated into the world we live in to express. Um, and it's not so that we'll be ready for another world. It's no. so that we'll be ready for this one. Yeah, it's I mean, the old heaven and earth coming together, of course. Of course. I mean, and then you take Jesus' teaching, who clearly says the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is now. Yes. Uh, when you understand that the word salvation um, has to do with wholeness and completeness, not being dragged away from something else. Mm. Um, when you begin to understand that the doctrine of hell as we understand it in most parts of the Christian church has more to do with Dante than it does with Jesus. Um, these things really start to shake up. Well, what was Jesus on about? And he yeah. was on about a, a living that comes out of now. Um, it's interesting that you should have raised that point because the thing that really stuck with me was that first part of Luke's gospel as well, uh, where he says, uh, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Um and I, I, there's something yeah. meditating on that idea that um, we we have this kingdom of God in which to live and move and have our being, 
and it's God's good pleasure. And of course, this is not the only place where that's expressed. You see this expressed in Paul, um, mm. where Paul talks in a number of places about this pleasure that God takes in the business of reconciling, uh, about bringing things together, which of course is what the kingdom is, bringing things together under the head, which is uh, the spirit of Christ. And so uh, this idea that God takes pleasure in this is incredibly important, particularly when, you know, last week um, and, and other weeks before, you know, looking at what prophecy was about, the nature of prophecy, and we sort of you know, pointed out that it's not just about, you know, wrath and indignation and this is what's going to happen at the end of time. It's more about declaring if we keep going down this path, we're going to end up there. Um, when we understand that there's not this spiteful, wrathful God represented, I know that a lot of people throw that unjustly and say, oh, the Hebrew scriptures are the ones that are about this wrathful God, the New Testament, the part about the loving God. Nah, this loving God's right way through. Um, and this loving God actually takes pleasure in giving us the kingdom. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's... I mean, I know it sounds self-indulgent, but that's worth dwelling on, if only to remind us of that truth, um, mm. to remind us of, uh, you know, I, I posted um, just today uh, in Instagram a quote from uh, Thomas Keating, and the quote was uh, simply that uh, the chief thing that separates us from God is the thought that we're separated from God. Um why we sit around saying things like God mustn't take pleasure in doing anything for us when it's we're told in scripture God does. Um, and the only thing that stops us from accepting that is ourselves. It's this innate human need to make things complex and complicated and convoluted and in unable to accept things like grace. Uh our humanity gets in the way of grace so often, not just the grace we receive from God, but the grace that God gives to others we even fail to see, um, yeah. particularly particularly <clears throat> those who aren't under our roof or on our side of the fence. Um, we fail to see how God brings blessing on them as well. Um, yes. So this, this is a, a passage that, or just a phrase that I've just thought about in so many different ways, and I think there's something very beautiful and powerful that I've you know, found in sitting there and dwelling on it, that changes my thinking, not just about myself, but about others yeah, and how God relates to others. Um, yeah. And once again, we've, well, once again, we've found these readings taking us, I think, to the prophet Jonah, where he's, the whole message really is that God's love is God's hesed. Um, God, the love of God is bigger than, you know, your love of nation. Um your love of your nation's future. Um, God is just so, so, so much bigger than that. Um, so it is sitting there, you know, sitting there in the Old Testament, mm. in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, it, it's just so hard for us to imagine. Yes, it's, it's hardly, hardly a finger-pointing thing at the, the Jewish nation, even the ancient Jewish nation, to say, you missed it, we got it. Mm. It took... It took everything um, of the incarnation to help us reimagine um, that God was as gracious as God is. And I, I uh, you know, 
it, it is just such a paradigm shift for us to move into the zone of a God of grace um, that, that we find it very, very difficult for ourselves, yeah. for others, for people within our community, for people beyond it. Um, we, we really struggle to imagine a God whose love is this big. Yeah. Whew. Let's not get hung on, on last week too much because we've still got this week's <laughs> stuff to do. So this week, the uh, the readings for the 10th Sunday after Pentecost uh, come from Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7, from Psalm 80, verses 1 and 2, and then from verse 8 to 19, from Hebrews 11, verses 29 to chapter 12, verse 2, and then Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 49 to 56 and of course all of those uh readings you can find in the show notes if you're watching or listening on spotify if you're watching on youtube they're just below uh and in both places it's quite probable and hopeful if it worked that they have links to them if not uh put them in the search engine or just um go directly to the uh, vanderbilt library website and uh you'll be able to find the lectionary readings there uh, just revise common lectionary Vanderbilt into the search engine, and it'll take you right to it. Well, hi Vanderbilt. There's, <laughs> there's no money in it for us. Don't worry about it. Um, all right, so there there are readings for this week, and another. Um, the word in my mind is challenging, but I don't think I want to say challenging. A very um, forthright. Actually, no, they are challenging. Uh, all four readings really do um, put a bit of boot in. Uh, yes, they do. Yes. Um, so let's not beat around the bush. Um, I was going to say, what do you want to kick off just after saying you want to put the boot in? Um, <laughs> <laughs> totally unscripted, folks. Totally Perfect. unscripted. Perfect. Um, where do you want to kick off, my friend? Oh, I really don't mind. I'm, uh, I think all of these fit together and yeah, they something do. independent to say. Um, they do. But so there's, it doesn't really worry me. I'm happy just to start at the top if you're... Let's start at the top and work our way through. A good space. And before we kick in, uh, let me also add that if you're watching slash listening and you, as we're talking about these readings or even in your own study a little bit later, if you find uh, something there, something that you pulled out, please engage with us uh, in all the places, at Monk in Docs, at Instagram, you'll find my... Um, stuff there and you can jump on the direct messages send me a note uh, jump on to barefootfollower.life uh, yes. which is mark's blog and drop comments there or send us an email at between two sundays that's the number two at gmail.com and and tell us what it is you've been learning what has you been seeing from these passages so we'd love to hear what it is that you're gleaning from them as well and learn in this together mm -hmm. isaiah chapter five yeah yeah. Grapes and vineyards. Grapes and vineyards. And I, and I love I love this um, because, of course, the first thing that stands out is in verse 2, after digging the vineyard and clearing it of stones and planting the choice vines and putting up a watchtower to keep watch on, I guess, the birds and raiders and stuff and um, getting your wine vat ready, you're going to get the grapes, but they're not the grapes you planted. They're not the ones you expect. You're going to bring out a yeah. a, uh, a red Shiraz this year yeah. and you go in and yeah. someone's planted Chardonnay grapes. Yeah. Like, what the heck is going on here? Um, 
you know, wild grapes as the things it's used. And initially I thought maybe it's a problem with the wildness um, and, and maybe it is, but I think it's more to do, as, as I reflected on it, more to do with the fact that there was an expectation of what would come out of this vineyard. And mm. despite all the work that the uh, the, the vinegar, the, what's the word for it, viviculturist, anyway, the <laughs> winemaker, the vineyard owner, yep. Um, yep. all the work they put into the gardening and all that sort of stuff, they still don't get the product that they want, uh, despite the fact that it's a beautiful vineyard, it's well cared for, and it's on a very fertile hill. Um, and and the more I reflected on it, the more I got the idea is this is, I mean, this is reflective of Israel in the context of the Hebrew scriptures. Israel, Isaiah rather, is talking about Israel as being that vineyard. The vineyard is the house of Israel. The equivalent of the house of Israel now, though, uh, within the Christian world at least, would be the church. So this is really, I think, a challenge to the church that the church is established. And those of you who do follow me at Monkin Docs will know that I'm very much about this. And so this is why when I started to see it, I thought, wow, it's it's right here. Um, We've got the church, which has all this very fine, fertile ground. It's cared for. It's looked after. It's blessed. It's whatever else is sown into it. And yet God is saying the wine or the grapes didn't turn out right. And this is why we were saying before, these are four readings that are really, really challenging. And this first one uh, is really a great, well, all them aren't great places to start, but the first kick in the guts really is, as the church, literally, what have we become? And have we become the fruit that God expected out of the church? Um, You know, this this, this oh, fruitfulness, this fruitfulness um, theme is very prominent throughout the New Testament. Mm. This the fruit is the way we are to discern. Um, and and this, I, I don't know. I, I'd love to know. My understanding is wild grapes are a lot smaller, and and not as sweet as cultivated grapes. Um, but be that as it may. Um, we get to the end of this, and this um, this difference between wild grapes and the cultivated grapes that were expected is actually spelled out. And this is where the kick in the guts really occurs, of course. Mm. Um, it, uh, God God has has planted this vineyard expecting justice. So that's the that's the parallel there between these cultivated grapes. Yeah, um, this this is very much, um, and we've, it's worth saying this is very much the parable. Um, but it comes to a conclusion that really is um, is is pretty pointed. Really, um, I expected justice, but this but you have produced bloodshed. Um, I expected righteousness, but heard a cry mm. um, and I, I wonder if that cry is kind of associated with the victims of this bloodshed um, well which is i would quite think possible. so um, it, sorry, go. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I, I just, I love this as a parable, and there's a thousand ways to play it. And and I think Jesus loves this as a parable as well, because I, you know, he makes it into a, a parable of his time, which um, is very, very poignant um, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, but but really, it it kind of it kind of at, at this point stops being a you know a, a nice story that just pulls us in. And actually says, all this love I'm shedding on you, all this work I'm investing in you, and, and all this ownership, I'm um, all this ownership that that my my work and building describes, the work and building of God describes all that ownership. The hope was for justice. The hope was for righteousness. And as we know, you know, here these two terms are, are sitting side by side, but in many ways they're, they're integrated terms. And we, we tend to think of righteousness as a little bit more inward and justice as a little bit more outward, and maybe there are good reasons for that. But here is really a picture of shalom. I, I expected this to be a place of peace and justice and righteousness, a, a place where everything was right. And instead, I hear this cry of violence or this cry of suffering from this vineyard that, that I planted. And, and, you know, no wonder God is, um, and there's this, uh, God is doing so much more than building a vineyard and then stepping down and breaking it down. There's a, there's a cosmic element to this. As soon as, as, soon as God commands the clouds, um, to rain and not rain, you've really got this um, this very big perspective of God saying, um, "I'm I'm just not going to participate in this anymore." Yes, I, I'm not I'm not going to support the fruit that is be, that is coming from the vineyard that I planted. Um, it's a very it, I don't know. It's a terribly terribly sad prophecy, really, isn't it? It is sad, but I mean, I think we need to hear it because let's oh, of face course, it. Of this course. is this is a vineyard that looked really, really good from the outside. Yes, this is a vineyard that yeah. had everything going for it. This is a vineyard that was tidy and neat and beautiful, and people driving past in their cars through the valley would have looked at that vineyard and gone, "Wow, yeah, that's going to be a bumper crop come out of there." Yes, and what does he get? Nothing. Yeah, nothing he can use. Yes, and this is this is where the the kick of the parable comes from. You know, in the in the Greek at least, the words justice and righteousness are synonymous. Yes, there is no yes. difference between those two in the in the Greek. I yes. haven't looked into the Hebrew, but I, I think I will after the show if we've recorded. But you know, this on outside everything looked perfect, but nothing came out of it. And what's left to do? And this is the scary part. Mm. And this is this is why I think this is incredibly timely right now in the modern church um what is what is what does god what does god say that this owner of the vineyard is going to do what more was there to do for my vineyard verse four that i have not done in it when i expected this so now i'll tell you what i'm going to do i'm removing the hedge it's going to be devoured i'm going to break down the wall it'll be trampled down i'll make it waste i'm not going to prune or hoe it it'll become overgrown with briars and thorns and i'll also command the clouds no more to rain in other words I'm going to let it deconstruct. Now, you can do with that word what you mm -hmm. like, viewer and listener, 
But the fact of the matter is, the reason why we have so many Christians, and I say rightly so, deconstructing their faith today is this passage. This is, if, if you want to talk about future yeah. telling yeah. from Isaiah, this is it. And yeah. Isaiah is seeing a time like now where you've got these beautiful, big, massive, gorgeous-looking churches with all the finance and everything else that you could expect from them. But are they bringing forth the sort of fruit that God can use? And at the same time, you've got people leaving those churches in absolute droves and going, I can't compute because it's not making sense. What I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm reading in the scripture and what I'm hearing as I pray and I listen to the spirit of God, this is incongruent. And there's this this deconstruction that's happening that I think needs to happen so that it can be rebuilt again, not just in people's personal lives and faith, but in the church at large. Um, now, we'll probably get hate mail about this of the whole three people who listen. I don't know. We might, but we might get hate mail about this. We might go viral because of what I said right now. I don't really care. What I care about is understanding that if you're one of these, I'm going to say it, particularly evangelical pastors who sitting in your pulpits and shouting down at the people who are deconstructing in their faith, perhaps it's time to have a look at Isaiah 5, sit back for a minute and maybe say, perhaps I need to look at what I've been doing in my own vineyard. Hmm. And maybe I need to ensure that um, what is being produced here is in keeping, which I think is the words Jesus used. Uh, is in keeping with God's expectation, yeah. uh, is in keeping with righteousness, is in keeping with justice, um, is not in keeping with our brand new air conditioning system so we can met more bums on seats. And and this is, you know, again, have a go at me for what I've just said and how I just said it, don't care. This is what Isaiah is getting at. And it's it, it goes for all of us. You know, what are we letting our vineyard produce? Um are we, and are we allowing good fruit to come forth? I mean, Jesus got cranky at a fig tree, which is the same illustration, different time, different different moment. If you ever wondered why did Jesus get cranky at the, the fig tree, it was because the tree was blooming out of season and it was showing itself to be something that it was not. Mm. It was not a time for picking fruit. It was a time to be barren. And uh, here it's the same thing. Beautiful vineyard bringing forth nothing of of use um and it's it's a it's a great way to kick off our kick in the guts week on between two sundays i think just to just to put what you've said perhaps um, a little bit more succinctly um there is a massive movement across the western church and especially within evangelical churches mm -hmm. a massive movement that is saying what is the fruit of this um, and is, yeah. is is questioning that on a very very deep level what is the fruit of this faith i've been embracing um and, and i think that's uh, you know that's shown in politics across the western world that's shown in um uh, in church attendance across the Western world. Um, worldwide, the church is actually growing. Um, but in the Western world, we are suffering deeply. And it is it is around this question of fruit, I think. Even if oh. that's language people aren't using, mm -hmm. um, th this is a pertinent parable for our time. 
I would say that even if the church across the world is in decline, these people who are deconstructing and these places that are deconstructing have not lost their faith. Mm. Yes. Most of them have not lost their yeah. faith. It's yes. their faith that has moved them to deconstruct. Absolutely. Uh, and I think Absolutely. that's a really important nuance. Yes, um, yes. It is, it is faith. It, it is faith that asks this question that this passage asks us to ask. Um, so there's nothing unfaithful about asking that question. No. The unfaithfulness become comes when we idolise the church institution and refuse to ask this question. And let's remember... so clearly asking us to ask. Yeah. And in the Isaiah passage and in the psalm, actually, um, we get reminded of a thread that happens all the way through the Hebrew scriptures. Um, you know, when we read, say, the story of the Exodus, we see ourselves as the Israelites. We rarely see ourselves as the Egyptians. Mm. Yet in the scheme of things, we're probably the Egyptians. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, other places too, you know, when, the, when Jesus is challenging the Pharisees or, you know, choosing the mm. poor over the rich, we see ourselves with the poor or with, you know, but no, I think most of the time we are the rich, we are the Pharisees, and we need to be thinking about that. And here we see that again, you know, that uh, expecting justice but saw bloodshed, righteousness but heard a cry. You know, there is, we need to remember God actually does take sides, but it's not the sides that we take. We take in and out. We take um, uh, right and wrong. We take Christian, non-Christian, whatever. But the side that God's takes is um, the the vulnerable and the powerful, and God will always side with the vulnerable, yeah. always. And I think the unfortunate thing, and perhaps part of this deconstruction, move towards this deconstruction that's happening now, is churches um, have for so long sought to be in positions of prominence and power in our communities, who have sought to influence. Uh, if they don't become a part of it, they seek to influence power. Um, we've seen Christian movements into, in our country, Canberra, our seat of government. Uh, we've seen, you know, Christian lobbying groups being formed. We've seen churches who have tried to entice politicians and bring politicians in um, to influence politicians in order to bring about some sort of, I don't know, a theocracy. I don't know what they're trying to achieve. But at the end of the day, um, when we're in those positions of power, we're not with the vulnerable. And it's all well and good to say, but if I get, we can help, or we can just go help the vulnerable. We can just go and be with the vulnerable. We can side with the vulnerable because I think that's where God sides. And yeah. so um, this psalm that also has this image of the vineyard come through it as well um, has a very similar um, line. But again, like Isaiah and like the psalm and like the readings we've had from Hosea the last couple of weeks and then Isaiah last week, this God who restores, this God who redeems. Um, we see in the psalm this God who wants to restore the vineyard at the end of the psalm. And so, um, again, this is not a case of cast it out, cast it away. This is about, and we'll come back to this theme a bit later, um, burning it with fire and cutting it down, um, but not for the purposes of destruction, but the purposes of restoration, which I'll hold that thought for when we get to the gospel, mm. particularly. Mm. Um, but thinking think, that, sorry, yeah. to... sorry, I did want um, on this psalm, Mark. I, I really wanted to point out that it's a prayer. 
Mm. Um, so often, as we've said, you, you know, the the Old Testament, this Hebrew re- Hebrew scriptures reading in the Psalm, are kind of the Psalm is a bit responsive. This is this is a, a classic classic example of that. Um, so here we have this story of um, of the vineyard that's not producing the expected crop, um, and and the the very idea of this prophecy, I think, is an invitation to um, an invitation to repent. And here we have this psalm where it's turned into a prayer. It's a response mm. to this reality. It's using the same words. It's almost like um, it's almost like the Psalms are, are not only referring to this description of God's um, uh, of, of, of God's activity in the world and God's expectations and hopes, um, but they're actually teaching us to respond in prayerful hope that God will not just abandon, that God will not just give up on this vineyard, but that God will restore it. And I think this is this is a wonderful response to this this God who says, "I'm going to pull down the walls and I'm going to I'm going to walk away. I'm going to I'm going to stop sending the rain. I'm going to, you know, who's walking away." The response and the desired response in the heart of God and in the heart of the prophet is, um, it, it is repentance. It, it's this it's this desire that we would sit before God and say, hang on. I think your even your your hesed or your love is even bigger than this. We'll, we we we've done the wrong thing. This is totally justified. We've produced exactly what you wanted us not to. But will you restore us? It's actually a prayer for grace. Mm. Um, and it's a prayer for a, a radically, radically undeserved love. Um, and and I, I love this about the Psalms. I think they're teaching um, those who would learn the, learn to pray from the Psalms. They are teaching us to expect God's love to be bigger than the destructive ways that we embrace. Yeah. Yes. I really like this psalm. I love this psalm sitting next to this parable. I think there's, or this prophecy. Yeah. Um, I think there's something very powerful about reminding ourselves that this is a response to what we've just heard. Yeah. And, you know, especially in, uh, well, in an Anglican service, you would hear the Old Testament reading and then you would have the psalm. Which is responsive. Read by the people (laughs) responsive. Um, afterwards, and I think in this particular incident, incidents, they would sit together powerfully. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, there you go. That's we can finish now. I mean, those there's your readings for the week. Um, but there, there, there are two very, yeah, very powerful, but the challenges don't stop there. The challenges don't stop there. No, of course not. <laughs> uh, shall we move into Hebrews? <clears throat> yes. Of course, we're polishing off uh, the famous faith chapter and into the first little bit of chapter 12 in Hebrews this week. Um, Of course, we finished off last week with Abraham, who, 
as we mentioned earlier, you know, had all these promises made but never saw them come to pass in his time and lots of others who had the same. Um, but then what's, what's really interesting about this um, passage is these people did see their promises come to pass, but, boy, it came with some stuff. There was some yeah. baggage along with it. And the, I mean, the first thing I picked up on, though, is that, um, you know, all these mentioning of the people of faith, I know we like to hang there on, you know, faith of, you know, Abel and then Noah and then Abraham, and we sit on Abraham for quite some time. We get into Isaac and we get into Jacob, and then we move straight into this part and we kick into people like Rahab, the prostitute, and Gideon, the timid, and Samson, the morally weak, and uh, Jephthah, the murderer, and David, the adulterer. I mean, what is this list? Um, what's happened here? We've moved into this territory of great people and then into dodgy brothers' people. Um, but yet here they are, not just here they are, but um, through faith they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, um, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Um, and, and, you know, at the end of it talks about the, the world was not worthy of them. Um, mm. You don't hear that said very often of people of that ilk. But, of course, the, the difference is, is that that might have been their beginning, but it didn't have to be their ending. And their ending came about because of this hope, this faith um, that would take them there. Not to mention that after all those comments about the amazingness, it then in verse 35 moves into others were tortured, imprisoned, you know, whipped, chained, um, had to go about destitute, um, and so on. So it's not without the, the challenges either. So we've got a really interesting picture here of what faith is and how it works. We don't have to be these incredible spotless people for faith to make a difference. All we have to do is be faithful to the promise we've heard, move towards it. As you were saying earlier, as we're moving towards that thing that we cannot see, the transformation, that, that hope changes who we are, Yes. Um, but that even then, the outcome of that transformation and change in who we are doesn't mean we don't get challenges come against us, doesn't mean smooth sailing, but it does mean that we have a better grip on how we can move through those things or mm. walk through the valley of the shadow of death for you are with me, Psalm 23 yeah. says. We don't skip the valley, we do the valley but we do it walking with God beside us. Mm. And, and this is the same. We can come out of really bad beginnings. We can have our uh, receive a call, receive a promise, head towards it. As we head towards it and reflect on what is happening for us, change, transform, but then doesn't mean the level of the ground levels out. It just means that now we have more strength, I guess, it's almost like when I, this might be actually a cool illustration, when I go trail running and we're doing hills, there's this really cool mind trick um, that I learned, especially when we're doing, you know, the longer distances that I do um, and you're getting really tired. And what you do is you imagine 
um, either on the person in front of you or at some sort of other object, imagine that there's a rope tethered around your waist and connected to that person. And the way I do it is when I'm breathing in, in my mind, I see myself moving closer to that mark. And somehow, I mean, I've overtaken people on hills doing this. Um, not to say I'm an amazing runner, I'm, I'm not that good, but the very fact that I could manage to do that says something about what that does, that that thinking, that mm. promise that's ahead, that thing that you feel drawing you forward. And I think faith's very similar. And the picture that's painted here um, is, is, is very, very much like it. And I think it comes from the very, very end where after hearing about all these amazing people, um, Abraham and all the others that are in that whole chapter, we're told, run the race. You've got this great cloud of witnesses, but don't look at them. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep your eyes fixed on that mark and you'll be able to, to move before it. Um, and so Jesus um, is the example and um, we move towards that with that strength of knowing where our eyes are, are fixed on Christ, not on all these other great people of renown as great in faith as the writer of Hebrews makes them out to be. Um, so that there's a lot in this to pull out. Um, but again, it's this, this theme of renewal that comes uh, through this particular part of Hebrews 11 that we've seen in the first two readings, this restoration that God wants to bring um, or that they're, they're prayed for um, and this this refining fire that, you know, God is going to set the vineyard on fire so that it can be rebuilt and restored in the way that perhaps it will bring about the better fruit this time. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 pretty powerful stuff. Um, when you I wonder when you're this way, I wonder about this cloud of witnesses. You know, um, I think I've I was quite familiar with this um, passage growing up, even as even as a young man. This was not an unfamiliar, unfamiliar list. Um, but I wonder if this, you know, and and the cloud of witnesses always seemed like, yeah, we have all these stories um sort of back there and um so we read them each sunday and we 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 learn these stories and they they are a, a witness or a testimony um to the way god acts in people's lives or, or to what faith looks like um I, I, nowadays i wonder if there's something much more um mysterious um about this cloud of witnesses um I wonder how uh, alive and um, interacting with us day to day they actually are. I wonder if there really is uh, some kind of um, audience supporting it that, that's made up of the faithful people who've gone before us who are actually supporting us, um, perhaps even interacting with us. Um, I have a, a dear friend of mine who looks at this passage and um, actually uses it to um, to talk to um, talk to those generally outside the church who are, are trying to understand um, 
spiritual moments in their lives where they get nudges to do certain things that they cannot explain. Um, and they, they come to him as an ex-pastor um, and, and want to discuss with him um, what what this spiritual dimension to, you know, to their businesses and their lives and their families actually might look like. Um, I don't know that I want to go, I, I obviously don't want to go down the line of ancestor worship, but I think there's there's something here about ancestors interacting with us um and i think it's i think it's it, this is this is quite a, a a special discussion for us to enter into um if we're willing to to look at this to take this idea of the cloud of the witness, uh, witnesses and um imagine into it and ask some bigger questions about the nature of the reality we live in um so there's something i i, I think there's something here that's that's more than a list is what I want to say. This is more than a, an historic list that we decide to call a cloud of witnesses. Um, I, I think there's something very, very present about it. I actually have a friend that I was having lunch with the other day who's, um, uh, who, whose faith involves ancestor worship. And it was very interesting for us to have a discussion around Hebrews 12. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it was very interesting for us to sit and say, you know, what are the what are the parallels here? And he is um, he is a very very rational person, uh, educated, capable, and and reasoned. And he said to me, Mark, if I hadn't seen this reality at work in my family, there is no way in the world I would have believed it. And I think yeah. to myself, I think to myself, in that situation, what do I do? Do I fight this man's experience and say it's all wrong? Or do I say, actually, there's something similar going on here for the, in the Christian philosophy, in the Christian approach to the world? There is something similar going on that's saying, actually, all that language that seems so inherent in almost every funeral I go to, that, you know, they're together now, um, they um you know i'm i'm pleased for them this sense of interaction this actually very common experience of the dead visiting the living especially within the first what 48 hours of someone dying that very very common experience which in the western world is a conversation we have absolutely closed down <laughs> i wonder i wonder if this this language of the cloud of witnesses um, could actually be something that opens up, uh, opens us up to conversations with people beyond the church and indeed within the church um, and give sense to some of the very deep personal experiences they feel unable to, um, to converse, uh, to, to actually bring out into the open because that kind of thing is seen as so you know that's not us that kind of language but i wonder if this cloud of witnesses pinnacled very clearly in this passage by jesus um the great pioneer and perfecter of faith i, I think is just such wonderful wonderful language this is not god outside of faith you know faith is one-sided us towards god this is this is you know this community we call God, 
um, inviting us in all on the same level, all on this level of faith and trust. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's There's something just wildly, wildly beautiful about um, the idea of this cloud of witnesses, including God. Mm, that's I think, interesting. I, I think it's just wonderful. There's a an interesting line there, uh, you know, when we're talking about the ancestor worship, it reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, a Catholic abbot uh, of a monastic community close to where I am here on the Gold Coast. Mm. And um, I was with another uh, friend who has a very strong evangelical background, but open-minded and said to this, this abbot, look, um, help me understand worshiping saints and mary what's going on and and this is what the abbot said he said he said first of all yeah i know most catholics think they worship mary but they don't um apologies to our catholic listeners out there i'm just quoting this abbot friend of mine who's now a bishop in new south wales um but uh he said look we don't worship what we do is we venerate there's a huge difference um but he said but first of all let's just skip back a bit he said do you believe and, you know, from Hebrews 11, that we have this great cloud of witnesses whom are watching over us and encouraging and spurring us on in our faith. And my friend said, yep, yeah, absolutely. He said, all right. So if these people are alive in Christ, why wouldn't we interact with them? He said, if I... So if, if my daughter or if my, you know, no, he doesn't have a daughter, but if my friend's daughter got really sick, it wouldn't be weird for my friend to come to me and say, um, would you pray for her? And he said, this is what Catholics do. We ask each other to pray for our family and friends at times of need. But those people include the saints who have gone before us who are a great cloud of witnesses who somehow we can interact with. Yes. So we'll ask the saints to pray on our behalf. We'll ask the saints to pray for us. Um, and then he talked on, and when I talk about the veneration being likened to a teenager with a poster on the wall because they admire that person's qualities and stuff like that, he said that's what the, you know, the statues and the icons and stuff is about. It's about growing in yep. faith. But what really hit me was that idea that, yeah, if I truly believe that, you know, when we go from this life into whatever is, I, I believe it happens immediately. Mm. Why can't we, if we believe that, you know, we are still around but in a slightly different way, why can't we interact with that? So the idea, and again, I'm not sold on one way or another, please hear me right, but to be open to the idea, in Hebrews 11 we see this unfolding um, of interaction between people uh, who want to, and, and notice it's all about encouragement. It's all about inspiration. Mm. It's all about mm. um, joy and fulfilment and, you know, becoming everything that we're meant to become. So I think in that context, there is some incredible thought that particularly we in the West can be thinking about this and particularly those who are, uh, who might be of an ilk that's a bit less spiritually inclined, a bit more rationally inclined to say maybe there is a conversation that can be had about this and what it might look like, um, particularly based off this Hebrew 11th text. Um, yeah. 
This is one of those texts, Mark, that I would just love to see the, the my tradition, the, the evangelical church. I would love to see us delve into this and ask some serious questions, <coughs> um, especially around um, the way other traditions within the Christian world have read this passage. Mm. Um, I, I, I am quite convinced it is taken much more seriously and much more literally beyond the evangelical church. And I think we are poorer as a result. Um, but but there is something there, there is something that inviting us into a mystery beyond our imagining so far um, in, in most of the churches I interact with. And it is it, it is um, mysterious and spiritual and um, you know it's going to be beyond our ability to nail it down and say this is exactly what's being said here. Of course. It's going to be it's going to be a humble entering into a mysterious kind of relationship with um, well with with those who've gone before us, mm. and it's going to be much more than just the writings they left, or the songs they left, or the traditions they left. This is actually this is asking us to be cheered on by all those who've gone before us. And I think there's, I, we, we lose something if we don't take this seriously or if we reduce it to just the stuff written in the Bible that should encourage us. <laughs> you, you know, I think it's, I think it's much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Shall we hit this gospel? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a beautiful interaction between this gospel and the passage we've just um, we've just looked at, of course. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, I, I really like the language of being um, misunderstood. So, so Jesus uses the language of persecution, and he uses it very early in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, he uses it very early in his first explanation of the kingdom of God. Um, he, you know, he spells out the Beatitudes. The last one, of course, is this expectation. The, the language there is persecution, but it's really an expectation that we will be misunderstood, which we've seen there in Hebrews 11 already, haven't we? Mm -hmm. um, tormented, um, of, of whom the world was not worthy. Um, so, so there's this, this inherent misunderstanding of who we are as we follow a God of grace in this in this kingdom that's not of grace. Um, so I think there's something here between these two passages that kind of encourages us to say, actually, if I'm going to go through the world trusting this God, the God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, um, I'm going to be misunderstood. Yeah. And this persecution isn't, it's not nastiness. It's not, um, it, it doesn't seem to me to be, to as much stem from hatred as it actually stems from a deep misunderstanding. If the world is all about power plays, 
Um, and, and love is not the greatest power in the world, this sacrificial agape love. If that is true, those who go along those lines, who live their life as though the love of Christ is the ultimate love, we are really doing something radically, radically different to those around us. Mm. Um, we will have moments, of course, where people, people of peace um, look at us and, and, and see, actually, that's exactly the way I would love to be going. That's exactly the direction I would like to be going. Um, but there is this, especially in this gospel passage, there's this, there's this sense that we will be misunderstood and it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Yeah. A lot of this, you were talking before about, um, you know, I, I live down here just outside of Canberra, so this seat of power where there's a lot of political plays and uh, and including parties that are inspired by um, the, Chris, the Christian worldview. Um, I, I actually, I really worry about this. You know, what are, what are we playing at when we're trying to, when we've, we've um, we're so worried that we will be misunderstood and the outcome of that will be some kind of persecution for us. This is so, so clear in Scripture that this will happen. And yet um, so, many, so many of the responses of, of especially some of the conservative churches um, is to say we need to put it in law and force people not to say, things against against us um it just seems it just seems so illogical to me actually mm -hmm. and i'm not saying it's right to persecute the christians or anything like that but i am saying actually we should not be surprised when we are misunderstood we are doing yeah. something or we are learning to do something that is very very different to the way the world operates in some ways, oh, in some ways, we're learning to operate outside the realms of these power games. Um, and that is, it just is going to be misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, people are going to look at that and think, this is crazy. They're going to say, no, in the real world, it doesn't work, which people have said of the Sermon on the Mount for centuries. Um, people have looked at that and they've said, gee, it's really nice, isn't it? It just doesn't work. Well, it just doesn't work if your, um, if your definition of success is success here on earth. If your definition of success is following Jesus, actually it works perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, that's all about, that's all about, do I, that's all about what my definition of success is. Um, and I think a, lo a lot of this, a lot of this, once you redefine that, um, I think you do get misunderstood. And if you're expecting it, I would hope that would make us gracious within that. Um, but it seems to me that there's all this ground for us to expect this misunderstanding of those who are redefining success. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and as we expect that, 
that that can make us more loving and gracious and patient towards those beyond the church, that it can actually make us deeply, deeply understanding. It can make us do crazy things like pray for our enemies. Um, it can make us look so, so much more like Christ. Yes. And I, that is, I think that is deeply, deeply hopeful. So I, you know, you can look at this passage and kind of get nervous, I think, um, or you can look at it, look at it and say, okay, Christ went through this world. Christ loved in, in this radical way while moving through an unloving world. This is the one I'm learning from. If Christ is executed and takes the path from death through to life, um, then that's my path as well. And I think it can make us gracious and loving and patient within all of that. Yeah. I, I don't know what you make of all of whether that makes any sense at all. Or whether yeah, it I does. And there's, there's a couple of things that pop out from it, though, which I think is really interesting. First of all, there's we've also got to go the other way too and not, you know, put ourselves in positions where we get so persecuted that we then take on a martyrdom complex. Um, if yeah. we're persecuted, take it. But also, yeah, you're right, be persecuted for the right reasons yeah. um, uh, and don't try and stop the persecution. But at the same time, don't flip that and say, oh, I'm persecuted, oh, woe is me, this yeah. is terrible. I don't think in the yeah. West we understand persecution. Very few of us in the West would understand what persecution actually looks like. Um, it's a bit more uncomfortable than what, Yes. I think most of us have experienced. Yes. The other thing that's interesting here too, though, is um, you know talking about taking certain actions and doing certain things to make us th that that make us carry the image of Christ. And I think sometimes we have to ask, what are we being persecuted for? Because sometimes, in some places, I think it'd be fair to say there are people being persecuted. And it ain't because they're carrying the image of Christ. <laughs> it's because they're expressing something else yes. completely. Yes. And yes. Uh, I think that's important to take. And and often they can be the ones who take on that persecution martyrdom complex, yeah. um, which is a great way of hiding. So we've yes. got to be really yeah. aware of the flip of that. But at yeah. the very start, I love this, I, who's speaking? The Word of God. Mm. I, I came to bring fire. So the word of God brings fire, but it's not a destructive fire. It's a refining fire. This is the same fire with which God wanted to burn the vineyard down so that God could start again. This is the same fire that gets the dross to the top of the gold so that mm. the gold will be pure. This is a fire that Jesus himself says, how I wish it were already kindled. And then says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized and what's just on until it's completed. So even he experiences this fire um, that, that's coming. Um, and, and the peace that's talked about here, I think we get into a bit of danger if we reflect on it as being a, um, a division that comes um, to, to separate familial um, relationships. I know that a lot of people read that and go, oh, you know, Jesus doesn't want me to hang out with my family anymore because they're not Christian and I am. Nah. 
done by that. That's not what it's saying here. What it's literally saying here is that um, there are going to be divisions of understanding. Remember at the time of Jesus, there were a lot of people turning and following Christ um, uh, and that, that movement that was you know, coming in to follow Jesus. And Jesus was saying, there's going to be people who come to follow me and it's going to cause factions within their families because they will be misunderstood. Um, and it won't be necessarily a division of get out of my house and never come back. Although we do know that in some cultures that happens, there's that experience. I'm not taking that away and saying that doesn't exist. It does. But certainly here, um, I don't think Jesus is necessarily suggesting that for everybody it will be that stark and that vivid, that perhaps it's more about an ideological misunderstanding, that the division is more um, about axis of power as opposed to an axis that's um, uh, generational. Well, there is an axis that's generational as opposed to an axis of power. So, um, you know, even within the church, we see people who have been Christians for many years getting upset with how something else is done when some people start doing it in a new way because they believe they're following what Jesus is calling to do at, at this moment. And you have this division that comes up um, and disruptions. I mean, think about, and you and I have experienced this as musicians, um, bringing guitars into church. Oh, good Lord, bringing drums into church. Go back far enough, it was about bringing organs into church. Um, the organ was the instrument of Satan at one point and wasn't allowed to go in churches at all. Um, and, of course, that was generational stuff. That was, you know, generation rising up against generation within the context of the church. I think Jesus is warning us here about if we live this out and we truly, you know, you raised this before, if we truly follow Jesus, we will be misunderstood, sometimes even by our own. Um, yes. And it's yes. being willing to let that go. If we believe that that's the call and believe that that's the hope we're walking towards, then we need to be willing to say, I'm going to walk regardless. I'm going to keep going regardless. I'm going to keep moving regardless. But I was more drawn in by the last three verses. And I think this is an important one because Jesus is literally saying to those who are listening, can't you see this? You can tell when the rains are coming. But can't you look around and see that this is happening? Can't you look around and understand what's going on? You know, the, the even the Isaiah passage, can't you look around and you know how we related it back to church? Can't you look around and see that this is what you're doing? Can't you look around and see that you're missing the point? Can't you look around and see that love is being left for war or, you know, lack of love? what's going on here? So there's this huge challenge that I'm looking at here where I'm being asked to really think about what I'm seeing and interpreting that and understanding what the times tell me about how I'm meant to live in the image of the Christ that I follow. And I don't know about you, mate, but when I read this, and I know you and I are of a similar ilk when it comes to nature, when it comes to um watching the signs um i think i mentioned you know some indigenous brothers here in queensland that i've spent some time with earlier in the year as part of a uh, a group session where they talk to us about the signs that um the older brother will teach the younger brother not familial but within community within a village so that someone was always the holder of knowledge so the holder of knowledge would share knowledge with the one who was to become the holder of the knowledge 
Um, and it would be things like when the black cockatoos are flying east at sunrise, the fish are here. If the black cockatoos are flying west at sunrise, the fish are there. Um, our Indigenous people know how to read the landscape. They know how to read um, the, the, the things that are around us and can interpret what they mean. I think Jesus is calling us here to be very, very present to what's going on, not in a pull out the book of Revelation and pull out the newspaper and see where they match up type of way. Yeah, yeah. But certainly in a, when I see my neighbourhood looking like this, what does that mean about how I'm meant to live? And no doubt it will end up being a way that's going to possibly be misunderstood. Um, and I need to learn to draw those two things together. Mm. I think this is a gospel <clears throat> passage, again, with a lot in it on its own. Um, yeah. This is, this is interesting. As I tried to draw these two halves of this passage together, um, I found myself thinking, okay, so what is the present, you know, reality that they're missing? Because um, this is a rebuke to the generation of Jesus' time. Mm. Um, it may be a truth that carries on, you know, into all time, but it's it, specifically it's targeted here at, um, you know, at, at the generation before, you know, present when Jesus was present. Um, and I did find myself drawn to AD 70 as a, a you know a time of great persecution coming um, why can't you see this happening um, why, why can't you interpret what is going on around you mm. um, uh, and, and I I actually like that about this passage I found myself quite drawn to the idea that this had a, a concrete um, application in this time, and that Jesus is giving us sort of a principles for all times that we're, we're called to interpret our seasons. And I think there is a sense that, um, that, that, that Jesus is coming, that Jesus coming into the world creates this division and it's going to manifest itself um, in, uh, you know, this war on the temple. Um, not that I think Jesus gets to the point that he thinks that's the end of everything. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Jesus sees that as as problematic as perhaps those who see sacrifice and offering as being central to what we are called. When Jesus says, actually, it's love, love of God and love of others, and not. Um, and not sacrifice an offering, he's really saying, actually, this is okay. Um, th this is kind of a consequence of being misunderstood. Mm. But the kingdom of God, um, especially, you know, by this time is really established well and truly beyond the temple. Um, Jesus has been doing his miracles in quite literally all the wrong places. Um and as we as we get to a passage like this, um, and as we're drawn into the Jerusalem story, um, I, I think we end up uh, with this established case that the gospel, um, the, you know, the, the the manifestation of God in the person of Jesus Christ is something that happens way beyond the religious restrictions of the time. Mm. I'm reminded too, 
um, and it's interesting when you said this, it just popped into my head. Um, you know, both Peter and Paul refer to Jesus as um, a stone of stumbling and a stumbling block, respectively. Like they literally say that. And I always thought of that as being um, a, a stumbling block to other people. But it's actually going to be my stumbling block cool. in the sense that the, yes. the, 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 the trick will be living it out and staying faithful to it despite opposition. So it's not a stumbling block. No one else is caring if I follow Jesus, to be honest. Yeah. Their reaction to it, though, in that sense, well, not caring in the same sense that, you know, they're going to be, uh, you know, reacting the way they do. But whatever their reaction is, the stumbling is mine. You know, I've got to be careful not to let this be a stumbling block to me. Um, that in following... I don't stumble because of what's come. Not, I mean, Jesus doesn't make us stumble, but following Jesus and then what other people might throw at us or even how we think about of ourselves um, makes that stumbling go in place. Um, so in I that sense, stumble a whole lot around following Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think I throw that in because I just really want people, you know, if you're looking at this, um, you know, five in one household were divided three against two and two against three. It sounds like they're going to war against each other and and the division has come uh, in that way. But um, this, this is a division that, and I love the way you put it, it comes out of misunderstanding. Um, and I think if we seek that understanding, and I mean, there is also a sense too, if you really want to get down to it, that we live in a way that's understandable. Now, it's almost going to be impossible to do that because, as you say, if we lived out the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, we live the Beatitudes out, people are going to go, I still don't get it. I still don't understand. We've got to expect that. But I think the reaction of people outside the things of Christian faith would have far more respect for those of us attempting to follow it if they could see that we were trying to do it as it is. If they could see that we were trying to carry this life that Jesus calls us to, going back to the Hebrews 11 passage again. And again, it's about interpreting the times, about looking around and seeing people watching us and going, well, am I living in a way that's allowing them to see Jesus? Am I the, am I the stumbling block? Um, is my faith not allowing them to see the truth of yeah. who Jesus wants to be in their lives? And that is love. And life in abundance. Um, so yeah, there's some. Um, you yeah, um, you have you have me, uh, you know, thinking of a couple of my heroes, um, Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who, um, you you know, in one sense was was misunderstood by everyone seeking power around him, and was and drew people from around the world to the way he lived and the reason he lived it. Mm. Um, and I, I think the same for Martin Luther King Jr., um, who found himself on the opposite side of power plays. Um, you know, that does it. So he made many, many enemies and was <laughs> misunderstood by many, but at the same time attracted and drew together many 
and mm. explained why in his you know his wonderful sermons and um, and the way he spoke the way he spoke to people. Um, uh, I I I do think you know in those just those two lives there's this extraordinary dichotomy that they are so divisive and they are so community building all at the same time. Um, yeah, that's interesting. And, it, and, it, yeah. and it, really comes, it really comes out of, I suspect, their willingness to authentically live out the gospel of love mm. um, and take the hit for it when, when that was necessary. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there are many, many other people in that cloud of witnesses um, who we could refer to there. Yeah. Of love. Mm. Four incredibly deep, powerful, rich readings again. And uh, four that I would love if you want to follow up with us and let us know where you went or what you're thinking about these readings, please get in touch with us through all the ways. If you go to the, the link tree in the bio in the show notes or just below here in YouTube, if you're watching, um, please uh, click on that link and go to one of the links and send a direct message or leave a comment or send us an email and um, tell us what you're thinking because these are readings with so much stuff. Yeah. Um, I think we've got so much more we can learn and glean from them. Uh, so, yes, again, 10th Sunday after Pentecost, Isaiah 5, Psalm 80, Hebrews 11 and uh, Luke 12. Let us know how you get on with those. Mate, <laughs> another rich night. Um, thank you so much. Um, thank you. Thank you. That was, there's so much for me to think about over the next week there. I'm, I'm really going to have to dig into those passages. Oh, we've said this before. We don't do this for you, anybody else. We do this for us because we love mm. sharing this stuff together and go away from this chewing on what we're throwing at each other. There's so much joy in that. So thank you, folks. And if you are listening, thank you for being here. We hope you have enjoyed it. Um, have a safe week. Have an awesome time between now and next midweek. And until then, we'll see you for another Between Two Sundays. Thanks, See you Mark. later. See ya.